Welcome to the Discourse Magazine podcast. This is David Mashi, Senior Managing Editor of Discourse, a new online journal of politics, economics, and culture published by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Today, we're presenting a conversation between two fascinating thinkers. Our first guest, Martin Gurry, doesn't like to make predictions. But if you were lucky enough to read his groundbreaking 2014 book, The Revolt of the Public, when it was first published, you'd have an excellent guide for understanding much of what has subsequently happened in the United States and around the world. Guri's thesis that information technology, particularly social media, has helped to dramatically widen the distance between ordinary people and elites has proven invaluable in explaining not only the election of Donald Trump, but other recent populist events around the globe. Our second guest today, Dr. Arnold Kling, was one of the first people to see the importance of Gurry's book. He's also written his own influential contribution to our understanding of recent social and political trends. In his 2013 volume, The Three Languages of Politics, Kling shows how three different political tribes in the U.S., liberals, conservatives, and libertarians, have been speaking past each other rather than to each other, helping to increase political polarization. On January 31st, at the Mercatus Center in Arlington, Virginia, Kling sat down with Gurry to discuss the latter's views on the push and pull between the public and elites, focusing on three institutions, the academy, journalism, and politics. Gurry, who was a visiting fellow at the Mercatus Center, worked for many years as a media analyst at the Central Intelligence Agency. Kling, who is a senior-affiliated scholar at Mercatus, is a housing economist who has worked at both Freddie Mac and for the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System. In addition to the three languages of politics, Dr. Kling has authored a number of other books, including Specialization and Trade. In addition to this audio recording, we've also posted a transcript of this conversation, which has been edited slightly for clarity. We hope you enjoy this fascinating talk. a bunch of things in common, some of them quite random, but one of them is that each of us uh, put a, an e-book that, out that we self-published that, and each book was kind of ahead of its time. Uh, mine was called The Three Languages of Politics, and I put it out in 2013, and it eventually got picked up by Cato, and uh, you know, there's now a print edition. Um, and that talked about the uh, psychology of political tribalism, and now everyone's into that. I just noticed that you know Ezra Klein's latest book is on that topic. I was on a panel a few weeks ago with Jonathan Rauch, and he spoke first, and he said everything you need to say about political psychology, and I said, well, what am I going to say after that? Um, and Martin's book, uh, he put it out in 2014, right? It was the, the revolt of the public, and that's ab about the uh, restlessness of people and uh, worldwide. And now I think I think everyone has noticed that there's it's happening in more than one country these populist revolts. Um, so we we kind of have that in common. Anyway, Yuval's book is about the decline in institutions. He starts out with just this, you know, every institution has seen this decline in trust, you know, based on polling data, that there's been an information revolution. 
Am I right that at some you measured it sort of somehow at some year, like there was so much information available, and then that in that <coughs> year it basically doubled. Some uh, scholars at U Berkeley tried to measure the total amount of information in the world. This is the year 2003 or something. They came up with you know, they measured it in various different ways in bits. Uh, the fact that in the year 2001 information was produced at a volume that was double that of all previous history going back to the cave paintings and, and the beginning of culture all right uh, 2002 <coughs> double 2001 that has more or less been maintained if you chart it it, it it looks like a stupendous wave so you'll hear me talking about an information tsunami that's only partly a metaphor. When you chart it out, it really kind of looks like this enormous wave of information that has crashed on the institutions and is, is not a revolution, but a turbulence, I would call it. So 2 to the 10th is 1,024. <coughs> I figured that out before yeah. I came yeah. here. So that means if there was this much information in 2000, there was a thousand times yeah. in 2010 and a million times that today. I mean, it's a completely different. I have a different water metaphor, sort of your tsunami. Sort of imagine in 2000, information was a Mississippi River. You, know, you knew where it was coming from, you know where it's going, it stays at the same level. And now you're in the middle of an Atlantic storm, waves coming from different directions, 30 feet high, um, you know, you can emit, and, and turbulence, and, the, you know, you, and you have our, these boats and, that were built for the Mississippi River, and they find themselves in this storm, and that, that's kind of where we are. So, and, but that's not the only aspect of it. The, I would say the distribution of kind of who has the most information has changed. Right, this enormous upswing of information comes from below. Information always used to come from above. And our institutions, political institutions, businesses, um, the media, <laughs> were used to a world in which their little cone of information was pretty much controlled by them. I mean, there was some leakage back and forth, but pretty much controlled by them. So they control the story that they wanted told. Uh, in this uh, Atlantic storm that we're in, or tsunami, um, basically that's no longer possible. And a lot of the legitimacy and almost all of the authority that these institutions had in the 20th century has been swept away. Uh, basically every, um, every error, every lie, every confusion, every silly statement, everything that you said today that wasn't like what you said two years ago, the kinds of things that in the 20th century was kind of papered over because we tell the story uh, the way that makes us look better, all of that is out there now and it has completely eroded trust in, in uh, our political institutions, including so, democracy. So we, you know, so let's start with journalism. We had, you know, when we were growing up, you know, if it was me against the New York Times, the New York Times had reporters in the field, photographers in the field, wire service subscriptions, access to government officials, probably better access to academics. Now we can both look at Google, you know, and see kind of the same thing. Well, il illustration. 
New York Times in a very strange kind of roll the drums, please, you know, the winner is uh, type endorsement uh, of, the, of the democratic field, came up with two somehow, uh, Warren and Klobuchar, and it was yawn. Nobody cared, right? Joe Rogan, <laughs> totally unaffiliated podcaster whose audience dwarfs not only the New York Times by many, many factors, but any newscaster uh, on television endorses Bernie Sanders, and it's controversy for a week, right? And people yelling, that mattered. New York Times, nobody cared. It's a changed world. The, uh, I don't want to spend much time on the current politics, but we are a few days away from the Iowa caucus. And I guess I'm old-fashioned. I'm surprised that Warren has fallen really below what I thought was her floor, if you read the polls. And Sanders has risen above what I thought was his ceiling. Um, you know, it's, and I give a, sort of a social media type interpretation, and your Joe Rogan example would probably be, would fit perfectly in this, that you know, when we were growing up, it was the heyday, or you know, or maybe even 30 years ago, it was the heyday of the protected <coughs> politician. You, know, you can pic picture the politician surrounded by consultants and pollsters and spin doctors, and they would make sure that not everything that the politician thought, felt, instinctively reacted to got out to the public. I mean, they were, that was kind of their job. And that was normal. We just expected that. Now, for some reason, with, with, with today's media, <coughs> nobody's supposed to filter these politicians anymore. I mean, Trump doesn't get filtered. And I suspect that the, that the reason that Sanders has done better than I expected in war and worse is that she's more old-fashioned calculating, and he is just, he's what he is. Is that? Yeah, well, I, th I think the politics of nominating a president to the United States are crazy. I mean, institutionally crazy. This is not revolt to the public crazy. It's institutionally crazy. It's kind of hard to get a sense of what the hell actually is happening there, but I, if I were to make a guess, that's exactly right. I think uh, the public, many layers of the public want a disruptor. They don't like the, uh, the elite class to, to feel comfortable and smug, so they elect people like Trump. That seems to be his job in life. Um, or they settle somebody like Bernie, who's a real disruptor. I mean, and God help us. I mean, so he, he, he's what he is and has always been so. Warren is much more of a, well, I think for this election, this is who I'm going to be. And the public can sniff it out in a minute, I think, in this environment. And, 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 and it matters more. I mean, one of the things that I, I claim is that the smartphone and social media have created a collision between two worlds that, when I was growing up, were different. I call them the intimate world and the remote world. So the intimate world, your friends, your family, the people you associate with, and the remote world was politicians, celebrities, extremists, what have you. And you know, they used to be quite separate. You you only dealt with the remote world, you saw them in magazines or on television or whatever. Now, if you have your smartphone, you can have your friend you picture of your friend, you flip your finger, and you've got the politicians or the celebrities or the extremists. 
and I think that somehow that's changing people's expectations. They just, they can't, I think they may they have a harder time accepting the filtered, image-managed politician, and they, they, ex they just expect to be able to communicate more directly and, and sort of see someone who looks like more from their intimate world. Yeah, I think uh, there's what I call a tremendous set of um, utopian expectations that the public brings to this, this strange contest between the public and elites. The elites, uh, we can talk about them later if you want, or we can talk about journalism now, but the public is basically in against mode. It, it's, it's, it's absolutely driven by negation, very powerfully driven by negation. I mean, you look at these revolts, there were th at least 30 of them in the year 2019. I can tell when my, my book does well because the world is doing badly, you know? <laughs> um, so in 2019, with all this turmoil and, and, and uh, <coughs> violence in many places, um, it, you looked at a lot of those revolts and you saw that these were people who were driven by uh, a powerful sense that they wanted to get rid of, of the, the, the status quo, but who brought no alternatives to the table did not have leaders or organizations or ideologies that could be negotiated with and transacted with. So they're kind of stuck in that mood. Um, and um, that is what, if you're a politician today, you have to tap into in some ways, I think. So back to journalism, what, so what does that mean for journalism? Because you know, we again, you know, we'll show our age, we're growing up, you know, there was this there was this what I call a prestige hierarchy in journalism that um, you know the New York Times was above a local newspaper which is above something else the you know CBS News was above your local broadcaster above something else and again you know the the public had no role in kind of creating news uh, which they which they do now um, you know, nowadays you don't need the New York Times photographer to get find out what's going on in Hong Kong. You can you, know, you can look at uh, what what the <coughs> protesters themselves put up on social media. So I would describe right now is we sort of have two kind of equal and opposing narratives. I mean, if you look at impeachment, it's like the narrative is he's guilty, he should be thrown out of office, and then the other narrative is it's a conspiracy against him, and those, and, you know, things don't move. Like I say, the New York Times didn't move the uh, Warren poll numbers, and the... Probably helped sinker. And then the media have not moved, uh, you know, the media that wanted to so badly to see this impeachment move forward haven't been able to, to move a thing. You know, with, with Nixon's impeachment, I think the support for impeachment went from something like 25 percent, you know, right after the election or right, at, right as the Watergate story was breaking to 75 percent right before his resignation. So the media was able to move the story. They, but now there's just, there's just a collision. Yeah, I mean, I'm a skeptic on journalism. I don't think it exists. Um, if we're talking about the news business, um, it was one of the very earliest victims of that information tsunami. It basically got bowled over. Um, and there's all kinds of economic consequences to that in terms of newspapers going out of business, the number of journalistic jobs shriveling down. I think. 
from the perspective of the institution, what is worst is what you said, is that loss of prestige. The, 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 the thought that I used to tell the story that everybody had to listen to about, in a moment like, like the presidential election, about who gets to be president next, right? Um, so not surprisingly, the news business is exceedingly bitter and resentful of what has happened uh, in, in the larger world of information. And I mean, I, I go look at the content of the New York Times over the last three years. If you can find a single piece that smiles on Silicon Valley, right, I'd, I'll give you a dollar. Mm -hmm. I mean, they just don't like the new technology. They feel it has to be regulated. They feel it has to be taxed. They feel it has to be, you know, somehow managed for its fake news. I mean, we are superior, you are inferior. Um, so, but in the end, I think when you look ahead, we're, we're talking about scenarios for the future. And, you know, I have no crystal ball, and I will say I'm not in the prophecy business. Um, but it seems to me that I have Antonio uh, Garcia Martinez, um, who's a pretty perceptive guy, has this theory that essentially the big pl digital platforms that, ha that are putting the news business out of business. Uh, are going to become the mainstream, and they were going to have to reconcile a lot of opposing views and aggregate a lot of opposing views. So they're probably going to observe the proprieties and make everybody behave themselves because they have to maintain that, kind of like newspapers pretended to be in the 20th century. And the newspapers and news broadcasts are going to revert to what they once were and are in many other countries, which is just very open uh, advocacy for specific parties or ideologies. Yeah, that seems to be where they're reacting. It's like, you know, in order to get clicks, we've got to express outrage about the other side. And, you know, that that seems to be their reaction. Very dysfunctional. It, it, if their goal was to maintain their prestige, it's been a totally dysfunctional reaction in two ways. One is they become extremely partisan and biased, which is not going to help your prestige. And the other is, I think, you know, the other type of hierarchy from an anthropological point of view is a dominance hierarchy where, you know, so with a prestige hierarchy, you respect <coughs> the people on top of you and you, and you want to copy them. With a dominance hierarchy, you kind of sullenly obey them because, you know, they have you know, physical power. And, I, and some of these things that you're talking about, the media are doing, are, are just they're like dominance moves. We're going to shut them, shut down the tech folks. We're going to regulate them. We're going to, you know, it's, and anytime you're making a dominance move, you're actually kind of lowering your prestige. You're, you're, you're pulling away, you're, you're reducing the chance that people are going to respect you and go with you out of prestige. So, um, so I think probably a least likely scenario is the one that these newspapers and legacy media want, which is for them to recover their prestige. I, I just, they're not doing that. Well, that's gone forever, and probably rightfully so. Um, I, I think you're going to see various ways. I mean, it's happening in front of us already, right? If you can, if you can find a sugar daddy, Bezos, for example, um, hey, you're set. You yeah. can write whatever you want, and your, your, your salary is going to get paid. So you're going to have, I think, a lot of these prestige, formerly prestige uh, news, newspaper names be the playthings of very wealthy individuals. And I think many of the rest will do what the French do, what the British do, which is realize that there are niche 
partisan audiences. I mean, Trump has made that so obvious to, to I mean, yeah. people who, who openly hate him can't stop talking about him because he sells, <laughs> just sells, and they're desperate to sell, okay? So, I mean, the, the CEO of, C, of uh, CNN said it. He got angry and said, you know, you people keep telling us not to show Trump so much. Whenever we do that, our ratings go down, <laughs> all right? I mean, so that's, that would be another possibility. Um, but but you, had, you, had a, you were, I think you were talk, starting to talk about a scenario in which kind of we revert back to a prestige hierarchy, but the yeah. prestige would be the, the would, platforms. Would be the platforms. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, that. That's not my thesis. That's uh, yeah. uh, Antonio Mar uh, Garcia Martinez's, and, yeah. and it's plausible. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I can see sort of two dimensions to the question. Will there be a prestige hierarchy or a dominance hierarchy? I mean, you know, China, would, it's a dominance hierarchy. You know, these, and you know, maybe, maybe that, you know, if, if Warren gets her way of, you know, how to regulate what's news and what's not news, that, that would, you know, in theory, that would be the United States. Um, so there's that dimension. Do we, does, does, does it get resolved as a prestige hierarchy or a dominance hierarchy? And the other dimension, I think, is sort of, is it sort of single-centered, you know, sort of one narrative that, you know, 80% of the population believes? Is it uh, this completely divided narrative, which is kind of what we have now, or is it, you know, complete somehow, you know, niche beliefs, you know, there's no, no, no one believes any narrative, or no, not more than 15% of the population believes any one narrative, and there are a whole bunch of things. Any thoughts on them? which yeah. of those we would end up with? I mean, I, I, I don't believe that we ever were, 80% of us believe the same stuff, honestly. I believe that there was an over, institutional overlay that talked 80% about the same stuff. And then we were forced to kind of deal with that. And so by, almost by habit, the words that came out of our mouth were 80% that, okay? But if you sat us down and, and put us to the wall and said, what do you really think? You find what we have now, which is a lot of networks of thought and opinion, not two, but very many of them, uh, who today, of course, have every means of expressing themselves and of trying to gain some corner of the battleground that is theirs. Uh, so what is happening today, I think, is that. I think what, what uh, Garcia Martinez's idea was that well, maybe the, the, the big platforms can aggregate these networks in such a way that they learn to behave with each other uh, because the, regulation, the internal regulations of the platforms are going to be a lot tighter about <coughs> maintaining the proprieties, not you know, no, no physical threats or anything mm -hmm. like that, which happens all the time online. I mean, if you don't get a death threat, you have, you're nobody online. <laughs> it's a fact, you know. You, you just have the slightest salience online, you get a death threat. If you're a woman, worse. You can aggregate all of those. You kind of package them together and you make them behave in some way. I mean, I think it's an optimistic um, scenario. I think, I think the future is going to be digital, honestly. I mean, talking about the New York Times, a waste of time almost. And we don't know what's going to come out of that. We think, we think uh, Facebook is the model, but there, somewhere in the, in the fog of the future, there is an antithesis to Facebook, and we don't know what that's going to be, okay? Somebody is going to 
you know, eat Zuckerberg's lunch sooner or later, okay? Uh, and I, I think he's a smart man, and I think it's, 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 I'm on Facebook, and I think he does a lot of wonderful things. But there are many things they cannot do, and managing the news, I think, is probably one of them. And so the future, it, it, I think it's going to be digital. I think the prestige factor of the, um, of the, news, the old news sources, unless they do some kind of radical transformation, is going to be less and less and less. Um, right now, it's really kind of um, uh, sort of belief dependent. If you believe what the New York Times believes in, which is you know very liberal and, and very ferociously anti-Trump, then you have prestige. All my all my in-laws read the New York Times with great relish, you know. Um, but but if you don't believe in that, it's like you don't even bother to to read it because what's the point? So your sounds like your most likely picture then is sort of a whole bunch of different things. Now that sounds like a very chaotic scenario. I feel you feel like what was you know we were knitted together by Walter Cronkite. Um, and, you know, I mean, people talk about the, you know, early 19th century and how the, you know, country was, you know, probably had very, you know, people probably were not all at all on the same page. You weren't even, didn't even have mass media. But people lived farther apart in the 19th century. They didn't have to live with each other. Now we, we've got to live with each other and we've got to live with, you're t saying we've got to live with, you know, 10 different narratives of, well, What's now, going now on? You're, now you're flipping to another uh, topic, which I don't think is part of the agenda, but I'm going to sneak it in anyway, um, which is my background is Cuban, okay? And um, when I, as a kid, came to the U.S., one of the things that struck me as wonderful, as wonderful, nobody talked about politics. Nobody talked. The Cubans, it's that old, I mean, it would drove you crazy. Well, that's changed, <laughs> all right? Yeah. And, and I think... The divisiveness you're talking about is only important if politics is the most absolutely crucial and central factor in your life. There is absolutely no reason why that should be so. All right. Um, I have a sister that practically still breaks into the shivers about Trump, and I can say, well, what's he done to you? you know, name one thing that has changed. And the only thing she could name was, oh, yeah, we're making a little more money because of the tax break, you know. <laughs> 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 but look at what he said, and look at, yeah, but he hasn't laid a, a finger on you, right? So as long as politics, if we can make politics resume it, what I would consider to be a historic place in American life, which is small, all right? And there are many other things that have to happen for that to come true. It's divisive if it's just, you know, like we had a lot of Methodists and a lot of Catholics and a lot of, you know, Presbyterians and Jews, and mostly we got along together in the, in the past. Okay, yeah, now that, I like, I like that story. Yeah. Um, so let's turn then to politics. I think that's just it's another case where the prestige hierarchy has gone away. I, like uh, again, I'll just play the old man again. Growing up, uh, young man to me, w Wilbur Mills, J you know J. William Fulbright. For those of you who don't know, <coughs> Wilbur Mills was the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee for many years. Fulbright was the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. They had real prestige. If if the it was be probably been rare for the Washington Post to go a week without quoting them or saying talking about what they were doing. Now 
they, they could probably go a year without mentioning the House Ways and Means Chairman, the Senate Foreign Relations Chairman. And you know, the, the, the fact that, that Trump, who you know, was, had never run for office, never got any endorsements, could just blow by everybody, Sanders, who still won't commit to being a member of the Democratic Party, <laughs> is you know in in a good position as of again the polls. Yeah. We'll see whether his his people actually find their way to the caucus or not. I, I have a stereotypical view of them that would say they wouldn't, but I guess if the poll numbers are right, my stereotype can't be right. So who knows? But. Is there any hope of a prestige hierarchy coming back in that world? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't look at it that way, and I hope not, that's my answer, but, but um, what they need is not prestige, but authority. What they need is trust, which comes with authority. Uh, so that when somebody that we have elected, either all of us or in one district or in one state, uh, speaks to us, we don't almost immediately assume this guy's lying or he's, or he's spinning or, or he's trying to squirm out of something that I can perfectly tell he's, he's stuck in because we have probably more information than they have because they still live in the 20th century in, 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 uh, in Congress and they have the aides that give them this. But we just go online and we know more than they do. So I, I find that the political class is, uh, um, I mean, you need an elite. You need elite for everything in, in a modern society. There's no question about that. This elite that we have, which is sort of like you might describe as the Harvey Weinstein elites or something, <laughs> you know I mean? They, they are, there is something about their, their behavior. The, the good, the noble part of being an elite, which is you take on responsibility and you do things for other people and you, you have a sense of duty and you have a, a sense of, of service. That seems to be gone. They don't communicate that. If they have it, they don't show it, okay? Um, yeah, let me interrupt. That, that's actually uh, the point that Yuval Levin makes at, at great length, that he talks about the institutions used to form people. They, yes. they created a code of ethics, a code of behavior, and people had to follow that. And now there are platforms for people. They just say, okay, I'm going to use this for what it's worth to you know, raise my personal brand, but they're, they're, they, they owe nothing to the institution. The institution owes a little bit to them. Um, yeah. And, uh, so would that somehow be revived? Would, I mean, I think that's what Yuval Levin's hope for the future is that people would once again react to institutions as, you know, okay, as a member of this, this is what I'm, I'm obliged to do. These, these, these are my obligations as someone who is a congressman or something. Do you think that that revives or that? I think short of structural reform of government, and whenever I say that, people say, oh, so you're a Warren fan. I go, no, no, that's <laughs> not what I mean at all. Uh, I mean, government has to get flatter. I mean, basically part, if you read what the people say, that, that, that gigantic, um, impulse of negation and, and anger, country after country after country, no ideology, m mostly, some of them have vaguely left, some vaguely right, but mostly no coherent ideology, and no leadership. But if you read what they're saying, they're saying 
there's too much distance between me and the top, all right? me and that class. I'm an ordinary person. I elect my neighbor, and suddenly he's climbed up this pyramid, and suddenly he's looking different, he's sounding different, and it's kind of like he's become a, a Hollywood star or something, right? And some of their um, predilections, let's say, are not that different from what you would find in, in Hollywood, and that comes out in this information environment. That particular uh, moment you were talking about with uh, the chairman and so forth was possible only because the things they did in their personal lives and the things they said in Congress outside of the, the record were never reported. I, I had a friend who was a, um, a Senate page for another young man. <laughs> the stories he would tell about those days would, uh, um, would make anything you say about politicians today pale. Um, so basically we now know that these people are the way they are. We need to change that. We need to change, and, and I don't know how it's going to happen other than we need new people. I mean, we, need, we need new people. We need, we need this uh, elite, which is still heavily baby boomerish, um, to make room for fresh faces who are going to be a lot more adept at the digital dispensation and hopefully have a better shot at finding some kind of the right balance between digital information and political authority. And I would think that they would require a fair amount of humility. <coughs> yes. Because yes. they don't know that much more than you or me. Right. Yeah. I guess in my book, I mean, I asked myself when I, I was in CIA and I was watching this tsunami I'm talking about just going to sweep over the world and terrible turbulence behind this. What, what's going on? Why should information make that much of a difference? And the more I thought about it, the more it occurred to me that these institutions are based on a certain premise of, of controlling information and of knowing. So they, if you are a politician, you say, I'm going to solve unemployment, okay? Like it's a mathematical equation, right? Well, this is a, this is a condition that, that uh, is very complex, full of whatever you do is going to have unintended consequences. You could do that when the information was controlled by, the, by very few hands, very few minds. But in today's world, you cannot do that. You cannot say, I'm going to solve this problem. I'm going to change this. Um, you know, somebody like Trump says that all the time. He's an, uh, kind of an old-time figure that way. Um, but that's got a short sh shelf life. I mean, it's got a really short shelf life. Humility, I think, in, in, uh, it needs to be changes in behavior, the way they talk. They talk now like they have. They wear these institutional sets of armors, and basically not human beings. They're just some kind of representatives from an institution. They have to come back to being human beings, the kind of thing that Trump and Ocasio Cortez do so well. Um, they have to look as eye to eye. There's n the distance can't be there. I mean, when you think about it, that old industrial model of top-down control was functional, and I mean, we elected these people, but it was not terribly democratic. It really it is not. Much of what the public complains about is probably not, empirically not wrong. It's just, okay, so what do you put in this place? Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm still processing a lot of this, but let me jump ahead to the third institution, uh, the academy. Um, the academy is, I think, the has retained as more of its prestige than either the other two institutions. And, and the evidence for that is, act to me, I'll throw out the uh, admissions scandal. 
if, if college weren't prestigious, people wouldn't be trying to cheat, cheat to get in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah cheat to get in. Good point. Um, but I think there are some ominous signs, uh, uh, sort of random ones. One is that there, I, I saw, I really, I noticed a poll. It was poll taken of people in their 20s. And they, they compared it to a poll taken of people in their 20s uh, about seven years ago. So seven years ago, they asked, you know, is it important to go, very important or important or not important to go to college? And over, I think it was a little over 70% said it was important or very important. And then in just six or seven years, that dropped to 44% among the, the, that cohort. That's really ominous because, you know, at some point, um, you know, the, it, suppose that holds. Suppose that this, this cohort of 20-year-olds continues to believe that it's you know, not necessarily important to go to college. Well, when their children are in high school, they're not going to be like the parents we know, just you know, all anxious and having their egos and their, all these concerns about where their kids go to college. Um, yeah, um, you know. So, but what to me that 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 opens up, you know, potential alternatives because we know that there are there are other ways to educate. And the other thing is, you know, you know how newspapers got in some ways killed off more by eBay than anything else because they depended yes. on the classified ads. Right. Well, I'm wondering if dating apps could do that to college because <laughs> you know this. That is a great idea. Because you know, you, you know. Now, if you don't go to college and you want to meet somebody, you got a backup plan, uh, whereas you didn't before. And uh, so, anyway, I, that's you know, uh, you know, I, I think you know, for a variety of reasons, I, I just wonder if if college is going to be what it meant to us, uh, and, you know, meant to us as parents, even. Yeah, I, anything I say about academia, is, I haven't really researched it in depth or, or, or given much reflection. So take it as just that. I'm talking off, this, you know, off the cuff here. My sense of it, though, is that what you're talking about may have the same name, the university or academia, in those 20, was it 20 or 30 years difference in, in those two polls, 20 years? No, no well, no, it's just six years difference. Six years difference. Six years difference. So like, so, you know, yeah, so you know, seven, in 2013, 70% of 21 to 30 year olds said, you know, the, the thing that I, I either did or didn't do, go to college, was really important. And then it drops to 44% seven years. Well, here's my take on academia, and, and it may be completely wrong, but that's just, this is me. Um, I think it's essentially patient zero for what you might call like the amnesia retrovirus or something, which is this idea that history and cultural memory are the source of all the injustice and oppression in the world and are to be you know, uprooted and obliterated. This being said by somebody who is entirely the product of that history and that memory, defending institutions that are totally justified by the memory of certain principles and events. So you have this this strange um, denial of the thing that is, is created you and nurtured you, 
it's kind of like having a stroke. You, have the, you lose your memory, and so behavior becomes kind of eccentric and confused. And when you read the writings of academics, it's like they're, they have these, they're, they're terrified of things for no reason in particular. They're angry at things for no reason in particular. They see things that nobody else sees in the world. Um, and I think that's had an effect on what you're talking about. I mean, I think that, that it's the humanities uh, have absolutely hemorrhaged uh, in, in a number of kids who want to who want to major in them. Um, I mean, and that changed dramatically over the last. So maybe, maybe that's the answer because I saw this happening with with my daughter going to Virginia schools, which are not that bad for that sort of thing. But you saw it getting progressively more. You know, we we have to control what you say. We have to control what you think. We have to control because people get you know sensitive and and so th you create this invented world. Uh, whereas, I mean, historically, the university was where you went to learn to learn, learn to think a little bit, and learn to write with some sort of style. Right? I mean, it was the opposite of what it is now. Now it's like, no, no, th those things are the opposite of what we did. Yeah. Well, I like Yuval Levin's, and he, uh, this is maybe the best part of his book, is his, he describes the university is traditionally having three functions. One is the sort of practical, you know, training, giving skills that will be useful in the marketplace. And the other is kind of moral or religious education, you know, going back to Harvard and Yale when they were founded, uh, trying to, you know, uh, form the morals of the country in some sense, or reflect, the, reflect them or form them. And then third is to cultivate an elite to lead. And what it seems like to him and, and to someone like me on the outside is that they've really dropped everything. Well, they're probably maintaining the skill practical focus, uh, but they may lose their comparative advantage in that. Uh, I mean, YouTube is awfully good at teaching stuff. Um, and they've seemed to have what, what, from his point of view, and certainly from my point of view, sacrificed this sort of cultivating an elite leadership and, and just gone off into this religious direction. I mean, I, I just posted on my blog today, I feel like we've got a, a religion that punishes unbelievers, that uh, we, we, you know, we, we have not had religious persecution in this country for you know, 250 years, and all of a sudden, you know, if somebody doesn't sign the diversity statement at Berkeley, they're not going to get a raise. They could even lose their job. Uh, and that's just because of what they say. They could, they could be, uh, as uh, John Cochran pointed out, they could, you could be an African-American yourself, like Thomas Sowell, who probably wouldn't, wouldn't want to sign that kind of a statement. And he could, he would, he could be punished for it. It's just a... There's, there's some kind of collision going to take place between sort of the, the history of this country and the rest of the people and... Yeah, I mean, I think I, there are many pressures working at college. I think one that hasn't really taken off yet for some reason is a, uh, massive online teaching. I mean, that could happen at any moment. And at that point, you would have... It wouldn't be good for colleges in many ways because the, the, smaller, the smaller centers would wither away, kind of like when suddenly there were uh, recordings of, of uh, opera 
um, your local guy who sang okay lost his job because you can now buy you know some star from from Italy right uh, you gonna have the same thing happen here um, that's one pressure of working on it. Another one is this, this religious zealotry that's going on. And you could end up with colleges just being these massive administrative apparatuses that exist just to sustain that, that faith, right? But yeah, but uh, and you wonder how long they can have money doing that. It's and it's sustainable. Yeah, and uh, also it's, it's again a case of dominance behavior in an environment where you've historically had prestige. And I think it undermines it. I mean, if you, if you cancel people, if you shut them down, that's a dominance move. And that actually under, and what, and, and the irony is what they really want is they want their prestige back. I think that these, you know, the people in the humanities have felt probably for generations that they've been losing their prestige. They want it back. Uh, but that behavior is the exact opposite of what will yeah. what will get it back. It's science envy as much as anything, I think. That which has been there for 50 years or more. Yeah, um, I mean, personal episode. I mean, what I I actually went to George Mason when I was a young man. I I, I got my undergraduate, and my master's there. Um, it was another institution from what it is now, but in one way it was it was very conservative massively conservative. I mean, really conservative. <laughs> Old Virginia conservative. Um, we had communists that came and talked to us. I had a Black Panther representative. That and nobody thought anything of it. The idea of shutting somebody down because, well, we're the guys in charge and we don't I mean, it was the opposite of that, right? Try to imagine that happening today. I mean, so we have had this narrowing of what's allowed to be said, this puritanical instinct, which is kind of deep in the American soul, I think, as a Having come from Cuba, you, the first thing you notice is there's all these things you can't say, and you got to walk on uh, eggshells. It's asserting itself more powerfully. Um, it's again generational. I'm, I, I don't see how it can be sustained, honestly. I don't see how you could force a generation of potential students to to basically deny what they see with their own eyes and use certain words and th think certain thoughts that they themselves may not believe in. So. Uh, the future is uncertain. I have no idea how you get out of that. Yeah. So do competition will be one. Yeah. Well, that. So I, I, you know, I'm trying to envision a future 10, 15 years from now. What things look like? Do, um, does a new hierarchy emerge somehow in education? Do we like unbundle some of these yeah. functions instead so that uh, people are getting their skills here. They're get you know people who are trying to uh, you know, develop a moral framework are getting it here. People who are trying to learn the elite do's and don'ts go here. Uh, it's a I think it's probably going to be some unbundling. That could well be though um, some institutions that. Are see a space for themselves to to occupy, to fill those needs that now the universities are are, are kind of shutting down on. I remember in the 19th century in Britain, when when uh, Oxford and Cambridge were just ossified, just ossified, the center universities became the center of of, of le learning. So you know, a uh, university like Edinburgh, for example, was one of the best 
uh, places to learn science in the world. At, I mean, Charles Darwin began his intellectual journey at Edinburgh, okay? Um, you could have some of the same. You could have dissenters yeah. <laughs> from, from the uh, uh, Orthodox religion start centers of lear learning that are much more you know, about learning and less about morality. Well, yeah, I've, I've been following this uh, startup university called Minerva, mm. uh, which only has, I don't know, maybe 100 students in a class or something, very small, um, but very different. It sounds like, you know, it, and it's very top-down ex executed. I mean, it's not like, uh, I mean, I'm not sure I'd, I'd be that comfortable as a student. It would have, it would have some, some plus and some minus. But anyway, they have no, um, they no buildings. The students go in, reside in different cities in different semesters. So they'll be in San Francisco, they'll be in Seoul, they'll be in, I think, somewhere in Indonesia. I mean, just different places. And um, very tight curriculum in the first year that's designed to teach you know, various critical thinking skills, but very specific skills that, that the, the educators have determined should have. So anyway, it sounds like you know, I, would, I would much rather send my kids there to, than to any existing institution. So I, I actually contacted them and said, well, are, are you guys trying to expand? And their answer was, no, we're going to work with existing institutions, give them some of our tools. And to me, that's like you know, Henry Ford saying, well, I'm not going to build a bigger assembly line. I'm just going to give my ideas to the horse and buggy people and see, <laughs> see where they go. I, I, I don't know. But at some point, some, somebody ought to be able to compete. And maybe they'll have more of a will to compete. Yeah. I mean, the idea of there are many things that the new this, this very churning new social landscape that we have, mainly because of the new information environment, kind of laid bare to me. And one of them was <coughs> the strangeness of requiring that young people at a certain age disappear for four years into this totally artificial setting, controlled by these people who, you know, they had PhDs. I mean, that was their claim to fame, right? Uh, and sit through all these classes, and at the end of you, you get your this degree, and then you're right back into the, the real world where that can help you or it might not. Okay, if you're an engineer, probably will. If you are a women's study person, almost certainly not. So, um, so I think that model n needed tremendous um, changes. I think it may be a good thing, what we're going through right now. Unfortunately, the changes that have become dominant are um, the, the moral and religious zealotry. Um, I don't know, that can be sustained uh, everywhere um, by everybody. Okay. All right, you have anything else, or should we turn it over to the yeah. public? No, I think, yeah. <laughs> First, uh, thank you for doing this. This has been fascinating. Um, so question on the university uh, system, because it, it strikes me that, that universities are in a somewhat, many universities at least, are in a somewhat different place from, say, uh, journalism or something like that in the sense that they are very much attached to the government. I mean, you have public universities which are directly attached and funded 
by the state government, and even your private universities, many of which accept federal funds, both federally insured loans and research grants. Um, I'm wondering if that, if you think that changes the calculus in any way, either in how you, you might think it, you know, change may come, like will the public, if we assume the public will get dissatisfied with what's happening, is that a lever that you expect the public to pull? Or do you think that change, if it's going to come, is going to come completely outside the system through uh, entrepreneurial disruption? Um, well, I think that the ability of the government to support lots of things is just going to go down. Just, you know, government is going to be this giant pension system, right? Um, it, the big challenge is going to be meeting Social Security, Medicare, and in states, the, in low, you know, the, the state pension funds. So I don't think it's going to be a position to sort of continually add funds. Um, so I, I think on t I guess the way I'd think of it is sort of on top of the, whatever other difficulties schools are going to have, they're going to have financial problems, you know, just on top of it. Yeah, actually, I would disagree a little bit with that. Um, my take, and again, it's a superficial one. I haven't spent a lot of time at, at, at the academy since I got my degrees and got the hell out, um, is that the, the academic, for all his many words and bluster, is a very timid person and a very trend-driven person, all right? So you ba he basically goes whichever way the wind blows. And I think if there's a very strong sociopolitical uh, um, trend in a direction opposite from the zealotry that we're talking about now, uh, and the government reflects that, and many other uh, parts of the public reflect that, you could, have, you could have many, maybe not all universities, but you could have many universities, the academics flip towards a less one-sided uh, um, I mean, that, they, they have always struck me as people who more or less follow trends more than are anchored by principle. Bob? Hey, Bob. Right here behind you. Yeah. Sorry. Um, this is on. Yes. Yeah, let me follow that. Um, sort of a recurring theme in my thinking is um, uh, sort of the government versus private dichotomy is muddled these days and that for people interested in liberty, whatever markets, um, the dichotomy doesn't explain the whole story as well as it once did. Uh, so in the case of universities, I think, you know, even if governments were to step away, the, um, the accreditation societies um, essentially act in many ways as cartels so that if a university a new bold different university wants to do a different model uh, they're going to run up against accreditation issues that will be just as effective as a government taking away money um, i wrote a piece a couple of years ago on the way that uh, the structure of doctoral programs more or less locks students into you know, you're going to come around to my ideology or you're not getting your PhD at the end of end of this and we've set up the rules so you can't transfer to another university once you've really gotten started so uh, just any thoughts on that on the non-governmental 
uh, cartelization of academe? I guess my thought is that that has a, has a very fragile hold on things. That um, as soon as you get a critical mass of uh, businesses and other institutions that are willing to accept alternative uh, forms of certification, that could fall apart very, very quickly. Um, so that, um, you know, it seems very solid now, but, you know, potentially fragile. I mean, the, it's one of the things that Silicon Valley is really tries to attack. I mean, they, you know, they keep proposing, you know, different badges and other ways to certify people so that they can get around that. It, it's a cartel that a lot of people want to try to work their way around. No, I 100% agree with that. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for the talk. Um, so th this phenomenon of, of information, tsunami, uh, and, and some of the political ramifications, the factionalism, nihilism, uh, so, I mean, it's, it sounds like there's mixed results. Have you, would you predict or have you know, uh, observed that certain types of governments are more resilient to this uh, relative to others? I'm, I'm thinking, are, is, is a two-party first-past-the-post system more resilient than a parliamentary proportional system? Are, will authoritarian governments, kingdoms benefit relative to others or, or does it not shake out? Uh, break down that way my my belief is um, no it makes no difference the the revolt and this is what it, it gets really strange and has to do with structure and not with ideology the revolt really is against modern government as such modern government as it was organized pretty much during the industrial age so whether it's a Government organ. I mean, when you look at the, the government of the United States and you lay out the government of Egypt and the government of China and the government of, they're kind of like the same thing, right? Now, how they got there was very different, and the the powers they enjoy are are very different, but the structure is the same. And so there, I have not found that freer uh, countries, uh, representative democracies, are any certainly immune to that. Um, there have been specific, what, what does seem to matter is who's in charge when, when the trouble breaks. And most everybody that has been in charge of the trouble breaks reacts badly and usually gets politically blown up. But every once in a while, somebody reacts smartly, okay? Uh, Netanyahu had a revolt in Israel that was of enormous proportion for, for that relatively small country. They had like a million people total in the streets at, at one time. Over a number of vague, again, they were against. It began with a young woman who, um, who, whose apartment rent was going up in, in Tel Aviv, and my God, I'm, I'm going to have to commute to work. Um, and it just blossomed up into this complete, and what Netanyahu did is he set up this commission with a very prestigious economist and said, okay, they're going to talk to you guys, and you're going to now explicitly lay out your grievances. And of course, chaos ensued, right? Um, but this commission came up with a set of proposals. The proposals were enacted. They were not the kinds of things that Netanyahu would have favored, but he bought it. And the thing kind of petered out after like five or six months. So individual politicians, if they're nimble enough, can avoid the worst. <laughs> but systems seem to make no difference. 
Hi, uh, Adam Thier. Um, both of you have written eloquently about how modern technology, specifically information and communication technologies, have empowered the masses in various ways, for better or for worse, to challenge governments and elites. I want to ask you a broader question about the relationship between technologies, modern technologies, and specifically ICT, information communication technologies, and the aggregate size and power of the state. And our own Tyler Cowen wrote a famous piece, an unpublished manuscript back in 2009, about the relationship between technology and the growth of the state, and argued something that a, a lot of libertarians don't like to hear, which it is, it's been the leading you know, driver of the growth and the power of the state over the 20th century, communications and transportation technologies. So how would Tyler's thesis and your thesis about technology empowering the masses, giving them greater voice, giving them the ability to challenge the state, jive with Tyler's thesis that it actually empowers the state in all new ways to do things to us and our liberties that were uh, un, uh, impossible in the past. Okay, well, I'm sure you'll have, have something to say. Well, I guess my first instinct is the uh, look at the nature of the technology. So um, the technology as of 1960 uh, just, first of all, there's often a lot of very high fixed cost. So it's not going to be accessible to ordinary individuals. And maybe that's the main driver in this whole thing, so that it ends up being, uh, you know, very, you know, if, if you own the printing press, you have your freedom of the press. And if you don't, you don't, in some sense. Um, and now, you know, and then now the cost of, you know, the cost to me, to me of, of the equipment to reach you know, millions of people is easily within my reach. You know, I get, just buy a computer and, you know, get an internet access and so on. So I guess that's my first thought is that you just had, you had a technology that uh, just naturally advantaged deep pockets and the government had deep pockets. Yeah, I mean, to me the proof is in the pudding. When you look at what the elites say, um, their ideal future is the 20th century, all right? So they themselves know that the world as, today, as it is today is not uh, uh, favoring them in terms of, of information. Um, and you have, I mean, Emmanuel Macron wants to be de Gaulle, and President Xi wants to be uh, Chairman Mao. Uh, but you know what? Even in China, um, even in China, there's tremendous mockery in social media about these kind of pretensions. You can't do that anymore. You can't pretend to be almost a divine emperor. That can't happen, okay? So um, I, would, I would agree with, uh, with Arnold. I think that the nature of the technologies when that tsunami began flipped. It used to come down from the top. Suddenly, it was all erupting from the bottom. Uh, the public has this information about the central government. Uh, the central government has failed. They are angry. Um, but they keep, if I understand, they either have a nihilistic response, which is to tear it down, and we don't know what replaces it, or they're looking back to the central government to fix it. Um, why hasn't the public, at least in the U.S. context, considered uh, the possibility of uh, constructive rather than destructive solutions? We have a federalist system state, local, um, uh, third sectors that could be involved in, in solving some of these problems that the public is upset about? Or do you see it as just simply being a nihilistic response and a, a destructive response rather than a constructive response? I mean, I think there are structural reasons why, why this has happened. Um, I, 
if, as I envision um, the sociopolitical landscape today, it really is these networks, war bands, whatever you want to call it, they just got to roam the land and fight each other, and you know, there's a lot of uh, sound and fury out there. Uh, but they all share a dislike and, and, and a distaste for the status quo, even though they disagree about almost everything else. If you want to unify and mobilize any significant number of them, you've got to focus them on, on what they're against. Uh, that's true even for specific politicians who, who are good at tapping into that. I think President Obama, for example, you know, cobbled together a whole bunch of people who hated what had happened with uh, the previous administration and many, many things that they weren't happy about. The second you, you win power, you have to impose a, a positive uh, program Half these people fall away. That's not what we elected you for. I thought you were, because really what you were unified uh, about was being against. In the case of Obama, the fact that he lost Congress after the first midterms was the best thing that could happen because he went right back to being against. You know, there was no way he could pass you know, his sainted grandmother through Congress because it was totally against him. So that was very liberating. He went back to being somebody who just condemned and rejected and could gather enough of an array of uh, networks to get himself reelected. And uh, you, know, you kind of see Trump doing the same thing, saying yeah, well, totally. you know, I, the Justice Department is corrupt. Well, whose Justice Department is this? <laughs> you know, so, what are um, your president adults? <laughs> uh, so that, um, yeah, totally. and, but I, and I think it's always been true that you, know, you, you couldn't get a cohesive positive, positive agenda out of a broad public. Um, in the in the 60s, the there was political a lot of political science that talked about you know, obtaining what I, at least one uh, writer called quiescence, just keeping the people quiet. What do you have to do to keep them quiet? What do you have to do to have legitimacy, authority, all those things? Um, now you you mentioned you know one scenario that we didn't talk about, but which is you know certainly would be favorable toward libertarians, which would be for people to drop this obsession with national politics, which doesn't do anyone any good. Right. Uh, and if they're channeling things, channel things locally, where there's probably more evidence that they can beat, they can and will be constructive. Um, I mean, that's, that's an appealing scenario. I'm not sure how we get from here to there. Yeah, and, and I would add to that, that uh, Final answer, final answer to your question is that we've never really had a public before. You know, what I always like to say is we had this mass audience, you know, and I remember, because I'm, again, playing geezer here. Um, I was part of it in the old days, and it was like this gigantic mirror in which we all saw ourselves reflected. If the whole country was there, and that, you know, Walter Cronkite was speaking, there we all were, right? And that mirror has toppled and shattered and the public lives in all the broken pieces of that thing. So it's not like it used to be. So getting all those pieces to agree on anything is not easy, but they're all against, or most of them. Thank you, gentlemen. Uh, I think that your discussion is fascinating, and um, I don't think we're gonna find solutions today. I think it's gonna take a long, long time. Uh, I was a ch child of the Second World War, and I've been in the United States for 22 years. I'd, grew up in New Zealand. Uh, what you're talking about isn't exclusive to America, it's happening all around the world. And 
What I see happening with the information revolution is that we are living in a period of chaos and order doesn't come until you get out of that chaos. And I think that we're going to take another 10 to 20 years to have that sort itself out. Uh, what I think is going to be important is that people have been more empowered by the freedom of information and the freedom to, as you said, Dan, be able to communicate with a million people by buying a computer. Um, we can do that now. So I think spontaneous order is going to be a major player in what happens in the future, just the same as the beginnings of the information revolution were a product of spontaneous order. We're going to see more of that. If I go to the academy, uh, and go right back to the first thing that you said. It's an issue about trust. And why has trust in institutions disappeared? It's because the institutions didn't meet the expectations that were created. And when that happens, then trust falls off. Uh, and I think that as far as the academy is concerned, when I came to the United States, uh, you were a bad parent if you didn't manage to send your child to college. Um, but there are other ways of being educated, as, as you said, and I think a whole lot of families have been deeply disappointed that the investment that they made in academia uh, for their child to get um, qualifications that would enable them to live a better life um, have been extremely disappointing. And I think that the academy is behind the rest of society, and I think there's tumult coming to the academy that it hasn't felt yet. Uh, and it's based around it did not meet the expectations of the people who invested heavily in sending their young ones there and not getting what it was that they expected. So if we can put good brains together and understanding better how spontaneous order happens, we might have some solutions. Yeah, and in fact, if I may say something about that is uh, you're 100% right. We are in the very early stages in this mass migration from the industrial age to something that doesn't even have a name yet, okay? Uh, 20 years is optimistic. This is generational, I think. Thank you, very interesting. Martin, I want to just ask you to flush out what seems to be your central thesis, and that is this tsunami of information has kind of radicalized mm -hmm. a large part of the public. <clears throat> I may not be typical, but to me it's like a smorgasbord of information that wasn't available before. Instead of having to subscribe to 10 magazines and 10 newspapers, I can get it all brought to my desk. I can hop from one to the other, read what I want, uh, get a much wider variety of sources. When I was growing up in the, the same generation as you guys, in the 70s it was the three networks and Newsweek and Time and the Washington Post. They, they set the agenda, and now they don't. And to me, that's a good thing. They're kind of oligopoly over news has been broken. Um, why is it that, f for me, it's like going from a limited menu to the Golden Corral smorgasbord every night of, of news and information? Uh, I come across an interesting academic paper, and boom, I can have it on in front of me in eight seconds, whereas before I had to schlep to the library and copy a journal. Why is it that for me, it's just given me more choices and allowed me to be a more informed citizen. But according to your thesis, for millions of people, it's overwhelmed them, it's radicalized them. What, what, yeah. am I, what am I missing? I don't think it's done either of those things. I think it has opened their eyes. It has opened their eyes to, to what is in part, and there's two sides to this, what is in part a more accurate 
the, the process you were talking about, has given a more accurate vision of a, essentially it was a, an emperor that seemed to believe that it had this magnificent close up, but it, but it had no clothes. And, and what learning all that information, being able to, to, to um, basically summon up, uh, answer questions about your president or your representative or whatever, you now realize that what they're talking about is just what they want you to listen to. But there's this whole ocean of stuff that re usually reflects badly in them in many different ways that you are now privy to. <laughs> so you're angry with them, all right? You're angry with them. The extent and, and total uh, reason for the anger, you could, we could talk about this for a long time, and I'm sure none of you want to do that, but um, I want me to do that. Um, but I think in the end, there is an almost, um, um, I don't know what I would call it, but the moral aspect to it, uh, uh, um, something that is important to people's lives above and beyond politics. I think people have utopian expectations of politics as part of the reason they're angry. And they have those uh, utopian expectations because they don't, they don't go to church. They often don't have families. They often move around and don't have communities. And suddenly they're turning to politics and saying, give me everything. And there's always some politician who says, I can give meaning to your life. And then, of course, it's a lie, right? So you have, if you look at the patterns in many countries, democratic countries, it's like, I elect the left, I elect the right, I elect the left, I elect the You're always punishing the last guy, and then what happens after a while, the populists start to say, well, I'm neither. And they go, oh, I'll settle on you then, okay? Um, and if nothing appears, then you have a million people on the street yelling because they're all angry uh, about the fact that I want meaning in my life and nobody's giving it to me. Uh, that, to me, uh, I'm researching that, so I mean, take everything I said on that, on that um, head with a grain of salt, but I think it's an important element of what we're talking about. Again, this, this issue of the importance that, that people are placing on their political identity yeah. now, that's just yeah. a very... I mean, that's not something that automatically falls out of the information revolution, but it's, a, uh, but it, it's, it, it's part of the, the current state. I maybe, maybe we'll have another conversation on, on <laughs> what the prospects well, are. I think the that. information revolution, the information tsunami, has a tremendously uh, damaging effect on institutions like uh, religion, the churches, and, and uh, many of the sources that provided uh, meaning and context and support to ordinary people have been kind of swept away as well. So then the people who want those, those uh, you know, that, that sense of purpose, they're into politics for it. And, and I think part of what you described earlier, that kind of confusion between or the intimate and the remote. The remote, yeah. It's suddenly it's like, okay, you are really, you're almost like my friend now, Mr. President. Now tell me, give meaning to my life. Last very quick question so that we all have marching orders. Aside from Revolt of the Public and the Three Languages of Politics, which are, of course, self-recommending, what are the two or three things that people in here should read to think more and learn more about this? I like Paul Ormerod's uh, Why Most Things Fail. Uh, well, I've already mentioned Yuval Levin's oh, yeah, A Time to that? Build. Uh, that's, uh, I've been recommending that a lot, but I, I've, I've been recommending, you know, the, the book I've been recommending the most is, is yours. And, you know, like when I was, when I was caught flat-footed uh, after Jonathan Rauch gave his talk, I ended up giving a Martin Gurry talk, so, you know, that's... You'll get your 10% check after this. <laughs> <laughs>
Thank you for listening to the Discourse Magazine podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And please feel free to share this podcast with like-minded friends and to leave us a review. We're always happy to hear from you. Finally, check out Discourse Magazine, which is available free online at www.discoursemagazine.com. Thanks again, and see you next time.